This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Welcome to our special addendum program here at Radio Parallax. We did not get through all the material we wanted to on our regularly scheduled show, so we're adding another one. We think it's extremely important to go over in some detail today what has actually taken place in this country over the last couple of months because there is no better predictor, I think, than that as to you know what we may look forward to in the weeks and months to come. For this segment, we're going to rely mainly upon two excellent articles. The first, from Rolling Stone, is titled The Four Men Responsible for America's COVID-19 Test Disaster. The second comes from The New Yorker. It's titled The Warning, subtitled Why We Should Have Known to Prepare for COVID-19. Since our future is highly dependent upon the ability to test for this virus, we're going to go with the Rolling Stone piece first. Testing has been an unmitigated fiasco, and our inability to test has us driving blind. It's also very important to note, as the weeks and months roll by, exactly what actually happened. Because there's a lot of spin going on in various articles being put out in this great infodemic. So it's very appropriate that we name names and kick butt as necessary. To start with this article... And by the way, this article in Rolling Stone is in the June 2020 issue. The four men in the article about the four men responsible for America's COVID-19 test disaster are Dr. Robert Redfield, director of the Center for Disease Control. The second person is Secretary Alex Azar, who heads the Department of Health and Human Services, to which the CDC must report. The third is Stephen Hahn, who heads the Food and Drug Administration, the FDA. And the fourth, not surprisingly, is the person who's supposed to be in charge of the other three, President Donald Trump. Let's start with Redfield. Magazine notes that as director for the CDC, he flanked Trump at the podium on February 28th, the day of the first reported U.S. death. And as the president fielded an urgent question, how should Americans prepare for this virus? Should they go on with their daily lives, change their routine? What should they do? The magazine notes that at that moment, America was flying blind into a pandemic. A virus was on the loose, and nobody quite knew where. The lives of tens of thousands hinged on the advice about to be delivered by the president and his top public health advisors. Trump began, well, I hope they don't change their routine. Before he trailed off and quite uncharacteristically called on an expert to finish the response, Bob, do you want to answer that? Dr. Robert Redfield stepped to the podium and told the country, the risk at this time is low. The American public needs to go on with their normal lives. Rolling Stone says this reassurance came at precisely and tragically the wrong time. With a different answer, much of the human devastation that was about to unfold would have been avoided. Academic research from Imperial College in London, modeling the U.S. response, estimates that up to 90% of COVID deaths could have been prevented had the U.S. moved to shut down by March 2nd. Instead, administration leaders dragged their feet for another two weeks as the virus continued a silent exponential assault. Rolling Stone says even as he spoke, Redfield knew the country should be taking a different course. The Coronavirus Task Force had resolved to present the president with a plan for mitigating efforts like school and business closures on February 24th. 
but reportedly reversed course after Trump exploded about the economic fallout. Instead, the CDC director continued touting, quote, aggressive containment, unquote, to Congress on February 27th. Experts told Rolling Stone that the ship had sailed when the virus made that leap from infected travelers into the general public. They quoted Dr. Amesh Ajla, who said, if you've got a community spreading respiratory viruses, it's not going to be containable. You have to shift to mitigation right away. Senator Patty Murray, who is the ranking member of the Senate's top health committee and represents Washington State, the nation's first coronavirus hotspot, blames the administration for a delay that overwhelmed the health care system. Despite months of alarms that the coronavirus was lurking at our doorstep, the Trump administration failed to mount an urgent response till the nation was engulfed and overwhelmed. Ron Klain, who served as President Obama's Ebola czar, said we had ample notice to get our country ready. He listed testing, securing protective equipment, and building up hospital capacity as necessary preventative steps. Said Klain, we spent all of January and February doing none of those things, and as a result, when the disease exploded in March, we weren't prepared. Rolling Stone notes that Director Redfield, Commissioner Hahn, Secretary Azar, and President Trump together had the power to change the direction of the pandemic, to lessen its impact on the economy, and constrain the death toll. Each failed. When the CDC's original test kit failed, there was no plan B. The nation's private sector biomedical establishment is world-class. But the administration kept these resources cordoned behind red tape as the CDC foundered. Precious weeks slipped by amid infighting, ass-covering, and wasted effort. And the virus slipped through the nation's crippled surveillance apparatus. Dr. Howard Foreman, a Yale professor of public health policy, said with adequate testing from the beginning, we would have been able to stop the spread of this virus in its tracks the way that many other nations have. Instead, said Senator Murray, the administration's response was, wait until it's too late and then try to contain one of the most aggressive viruses we've ever seen. Describing these events, Barack Obama's CDC director, Tom Frieden, said, He can't discern who is actually in charge of the federal response, and that's dangerous. Let's talk about the CDC. Center for Disease Control is, of course, the frontline agency built to respond to a pandemic. It got placed in unreliable hands. Dr. Robert Redfield is a right-wing darling with a checkered scientific past. His 2018 nomination was a triumph for the Christian right, a coup in particular for evangelical activists Shepard and Anita Smith, who've been instrumental in driving the global aid strategy centered on abstinence. Redfield's relationship with the Smiths goes back at least three decades. They made their views plain in their 1990 book, Christians in the Age of AIDS, which argued HIV infection resulted from people's sinfulness and described AIDS as a consequence for those who violate God's laws. Redfield, a devout Catholic who was then a prominent HIV researcher in the army, wrote the introduction, calling for the rejection of false prophets who preach the quick-fix strategies of condoms and free needles. Redfield was a rising star at Walter Reed Army Institute of Research, but his career got derailed after he was accused of sloppy or possibly deceptive research for touting a trial HIV therapy that later proved useless. An investigation found no wrongdoing, but called out his inappropriately close relationship with Shepard Smith, who also hyped the drug. Redfield's resume, religious right bona fides, a military background, and and a knack for ingratiating himself with powerful people primed his return to government. When the CDC appointment was announced in March 2018, Senator Murray warned of Redfield's pattern of ethically and morally questionable behavior. 
as well as his lack of public health expertise, and urged Trump to reconsider. But the CDC director post does not require Senate approval. Redfield sought to reassure the CDC staff that his views had modernized and that he now embraced condoms to slow HIV infection. I've never been an abstinence-only person, he said. In point of fact, he co-authored a 1987 textbook, AIDS and Young People, that preached abstinence until marriage, writing that medicine and morality tell us the same thing. Warning in all caps, if you engage in close sexual contact, you are playing Russian roulette with your life. That's who's in charge of the CDC. As mentioned, it reports the Department of Health and Human Services, led by Alex Azar, a former executive for the pharmaceutical giant Eli Lilly, who gained infamy in his five-year tenure there by doubling the price of insulin. Azar is a creature of the GOP establishment. He cut his teeth as a Supreme Court clerk to Antonin Scalia. He worked with Brent Kavanaugh on the Clinton Whitewater investigation under special counsel Ken Starr and served as deputy HHS administrator in the George W. Bush era before becoming Eli Lilly's top lobbyist. It should be noted that Alex Azar has sought to shrink the CDC. In HHS's most recent budget proposal, unveiled February 10, unveiled this past February, 10 days after the WHO declared a global emergency over the coronavirus, Azar sought an $85 million cut to the CDC's Emerging and Zoonotic Infectious Diseases Program. Also, a $25 million cut to public health preparedness and response. He defended the budget at that time as making difficult, prudent choices. The administration had also hollowed out the CDC's China presence, slashing staff from 47 to barely a dozen. Those cuts were part of a broad-reaching drawdown of America's disease preparedness, including Trump's decision to disband the National Security Council's pandemic response team, In late 2018, Azar's HHS rejected a proposal solicited by the Obama administration to buy a machine capable of churning out 1.5 million N5 respirators a day for use in a pandemic. Rolling Stone notes that despite this austerity crusade, the CDC's initial response to the outbreak was by the book. On January 3rd, Redfield spoke with Chinese colleagues about a mysterious viral outbreak causing a rash of pneumonia cases. Redfield immediately informed Azar. On January 11th, the Chinese published a genetic sequence of the novel coronavirus and the CDC began creating a diagnostic test. And the CDC wasn't alone. Research labs across the country were racing to come up with their own assays. Dr. Donald Milton, who runs the Public Health Aerobiology, Virology, and Exhaled Biomarker Laboratory at the University of Maryland, said every molecular virologist I knew had a test before the CDC. On January 16th, a German company had produced a reliable diagnostic test that the WHO adopted as its own. Five days later, the CDC announced it had a working test. Rick Bright, who directed HHS's Biomedical Advanced Research and Development Authority until his ouster in April, says in a whistleblower complaint, he revealed that he warned Azar on January 23rd that the virus could already be spreading in the U.S., but we just don't have the tests to know one way or the other. Bright accuses the leadership of a lax and dismissive attitude toward the virus and singles out Azar for downplaying this catastrophic threat. Hailing from the establishment wing of the GOP, Azar didn't have much juice with Trump. He did not reach the president to discuss the outbreak until January 18th. Another 10 days would pass before the White House created a coronavirus task force task force with Azar at the helm. 
On January 20th, Azar declared a public health emergency, which had the confounding effect of slowing the testing rollout. Normally, private and university labs can make their own diagnostic tests without approval from the FDA, but those labs became paradoxically more regulated during an emergency. Azar had activated strict regulations that made the FDA the gatekeeper for coronavirus test approval, but there was a problem. The gate operator was new at the job and painfully slow to pull the lever. And then we have the FDA. Stephen Hahn had been on the job at the FDA for barely a month. He has an impeccable resume. He served as chief medical executive at the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center, but he had no experience running a government agency. Magazine notes, the need to engage the private sector for coronavirus testing was not only foreseeable, it was foreseen by Trump's first FDA commissioner, Scott Gottlieb. In a January 28th Wall Street Journal article, Act Now to Prevent an American Epidemic, Gottlieb warned that the CDC will struggle to keep up with the volume of screening. He said the government must begin working with private industry to develop easy-to-use rapid diagnostic tests. If Stephen Hahn read his predecessor's call to action, he didn't act on it. The FDA has broad discretion to relax the rules that were locked in place with Azar's declaration, but Azar had unaccountably not included Hahn on the coronavirus task force. Yeah, why well, get the FDA involved? The people that regulate the tests. Private test developers were required now to obtain emergency use authorization from the FDA. Companies couldn't make their own lab-developed tests, so you had Quest and LabCorp and the big university labs sitting on the sidelines. The failure to activate the private sector was the key difference between the U.S. response to the coronavirus and that of South Korea, which first detected the virus in its country the same time the U.S. did. But instead of going through regulatory hijinks, South Korea turned their biomedical industry loose and they started producing tests right away. With this massive rollout, including drive-through testing clinics for patients with mild symptoms, South Korea got in front of its outbreak. Now at the beginning of May, South Korea has recorded fewer than 1,100 cases and only 250 COVID-19 deaths. Said virologist Dr. Donald Milton, the United States missed the window to activate its biomedical might to achieve the same result. We had that capability. We could have done that. At this point, with the private sector offline, the stakes for the CDC test could not have been higher. The CDC had a peerless reputation. Despite its underfunding, it was considered a crown jewel of public health agencies. Kathleen Sebelius, who served as HHS secretary in the Obama administration, said starting with the CDC test made good sense. The CDC performed ably during the H1N1 outbreak on her watch. Within two weeks of knowing what H1N1 looked like, she recalls, the CDC had millions of test kits to push out to the states and around the world. There was little reason to think the CDC could not perform the same in this crisis. The CDC itself, subject to FDA regulation, obtained emergency approval of its own test on February 4th. The CDC's test was complex. It included two steps that tested for genetic markers of the novel coronavirus and a third which was meant to rule out other known coronaviruses. But when state labs began testing, the unthinkable happened. The third prong failed, providing inconclusive results. Scott Becker, who's executive director of the Association of Public Health Laboratories, an umbrella group that represents these labs and helps them interface with the CDC, noted that on the morning of February 8th, his cell phone began blowing up with messages from member labs. Becker said, to me, it was the same moment of, where were you on 9-11 because of the enormity of what we knew was coming? If this test had problems, we were weeks behind. 
He was stung by the realization that we were not going to be able to contain this. This is worth emphasizing. By February 4th, the Association of Public Health Laboratories realized that the CDC test was going to fail and we would not be able to contain the novel coronavirus. Noted Rolling Stone, it was as if enemy ballistic missiles were incoming and NORAD had gone offline. The crisis was acute. The U.S. had a single test for the coronavirus and it could only be run at the CDC's Atlanta headquarters as well as a handful of state labs that had been able to make the assay work. This bottleneck would require extreme rationing of tests to patients who traveled to foreign hotspots and tested negative for other diseases. The criteria were so strict, the CDC allegedly refused to test a nurse who fell ill after treating COVID patients. Of course, there was another well-functioning test on the global market. At the same time the CDC was sending its flawed test, the WHO was distributing a quarter of a million test kits to laboratories across the world. Sibelius insists that Azar should have recognized the bottleneck at the CDC and bypassed the agency until it sorted out its failed test. It's a real problem that we didn't immediately pivot to the WHO test, which we know was working very well. We could have purchased a lot of those and pushed them out. And the FDA at that moment could have called in the private sector cavalry. Said Sibelius, we could have opened up the private lab capacity, and we didn't do any of that. Rolling Stone says one might excuse Alex Azar for his failure to manage up. At the time the CDC test began to fail, Trump was in the throes of denial, praising President Xi of China on Twitter. He is strong, sharp, and powerfully focused on leading the counterattack on the coronavirus while predicting the disease goes away in April with the heat. Instead of engineering a workaround of the unreliable CDC test or leaning on his private sector connections to jumpstart commercial testing, Alex Azar insisted that the original test kit be fixed. He reportedly rejected use of the WHO test out of concern the test was unreliable. Of course, they note that it would also had to be approved through the sticky wicket of FDA regulations. The impulse at Redfield CDC was to slow down. Hans FDA, meanwhile, was focused on its role as the CDC's regulator, intent on rooting out the flaw in the original test. The agencies were soon enmeshed in a bureaucratic struggle so toxic that an FDA diagnostic expert sent in a troubleshoot was briefly locked out of CDC facilities. Kerry Weems, a former career officer at HHS who helped draw up the White House pandemic playbook, said the HHS got stuck trying to undo the failure. The playbook says the CDC produces the test and the FDA approves it. That's the gold standard. And we just got stuck with path dependency and didn't move beyond that. This crisis dragged on for weeks. Publicly, the CDC put on a brave face. We're fully stood up at CDC. Dr. Nancy Messier, the director of the National Center for Immunization and Respiratory Diseases, said on February 21st. Days earlier, China had locked down 780 million people. The alternative to adequate testing was a blanket quarantine. Outside the administration, top health officials were exasperated. Scott Becker tried to break the gridlock, writing to Han on February 24th with an extraordinary and rare request that the nation's public health labs be allowed to create their own tests, sidestepping the CDC. We are now many weeks into the response with still no diagnostic test available, he warned. Said Kerry Weems, I hope the CDC remembers this for decades because they failed. This is what they were built for and they failed. 
But this all gets so much worse. By Valentine's Day, the National Security Council had reportedly developed a memo offering social distancing guidelines, including school closures, widespread stay-at-home directives, and cancellation of almost all sporting events, performances, and public and private meetings. The role of asymptomatic carriers in spreading the coronavirus was becoming clearer. By February 24th, the coronavirus task force, Redfield included, had reportedly resolved to recommend a plan to Trump called Four Steps to Mitigation. But before Trump could be briefed, Messionaire had the grave misfortune of telling the truth. In a February 25th briefing with reporters, she warned of a wide coronavirus outbreak in the United States. It's not so much a question of if this will happen anymore, but rather more a question of exactly when. She cautioned that under social distancing measures, many Americans would lose income and disruption in everyday life may be severe. Frieden, the former head of the CDC, said Dr. Messionnaire's statements were right on. But after they contributed to massive stock market losses, Donald Trump threw a fit. He exploded at Azar and reportedly threatened to fire the CDC scientist. Trump soon announced a major change, of course. Pence would be taking over the task force, sidelining Azar. Trump himself minimized the threat of the disease, calling coronavirus a flu, and insisted that infections had peaked, saying, we have a total of 15 people diagnosed with COVID-19. The 15 within a couple days is going to be down close to zero. On February 26th, the CDC informed public labs they could go ahead and run their original test kits, simply disregard the problematic third prong. The original diagnostic test, in other words, had been reliable all along. Frieden, the former CDC director, remains incredulous at how this unfolded. It took them three weeks to say, just don't use the third component. The FDA simultaneously offered state labs a pathway to create their own tests. But the testing breakdown had left the nation blind to the true scope of the outbreak. By March 1st, the CDC's official tally of coronavirus cases had spiked from 15 to 75. Of course, they've now developed models showing that there were likely 28,000 infections by that time. At this point, shutting down the economy was inevitable. It was just a question of when the measures would be implemented. Scientists believe that up to 90% of the human toll was still avoidable had the government moved immediately to implement social distancing measures. Instead, the administration persisted in its do-nothing message parade. On March 6th, at CDC headquarters in Atlanta, Redfield again stood by the president's side saying, I want to thank you for your decisive leadership in helping us put public health first. The next day, appearing with Pence and cruise industry executives, Redfield encouraged American travelers to keep their reservations and even to visit Disneyland. Within a week, the administration's denial crashed into the reality of the exploding pandemic. Disneyland shut down. Trump declared a state of emergency. Finally, on March 16th, the administration rolled out social distancing guidelines to slow the spread, and the nation's economy started grinding to a halt. Notes Rolling Stone, having plunged the nation headlong and unprepared into the deadliest disease outbreak in a century, President Trump is now proving to be one of the greatest obstacles to an effective national response. Said Kathleen Sebelius, Trump plainly saw effective testing as a threat to his political message that the administration was containing the virus. As we go forward from this point in time, the nation needs widespread testing, isolating of positive cases, contract tracing to identify people likely to have been infected, and quarantining those same people. Four steps. 
Senator Patty Murray says Trump and Pence have abdicated their responsibility in this crisis. No one is putting together a plan, she says, recalling a recent conversation with Pence. He couldn't even tell me how many tests they need. If you don't have a goal, how do you produce it? Experts believe the country needs a minimum of 1 million tests a day to safely reopen. Through April, it rarely exceeded 200,000. And you know what? We've only got about five or six minutes left, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to defer talking about the New Yorker article till future programs. And of course, this is a pandemic. The United States is leading the charge in terms of cases and deaths, but that could just be because other nations are even worse at testing than we've been. The numbers from Russia are revealing a surge in cases, although they're not owning up to a surge in deaths. But in sync with that, Vladimir Putin is lifting Russia's shutdown while keeping some restrictions. In a televised address to the nation, Putin said it will be up to regional governors in the far-flung country to determine what industrial plants could reopen. Kremlin critics have described that policy as an attempt to shift responsibility for the high number of infections and bruising economic damage from the outbreak. And of course, here at home, the administration is blaming our governors of various states. What an odd coincidence. The numbers from India are climbing. The world's second most populous nation is now getting up toward 100,000. The Economist notes that the Indian population is apparently victimized by arbitrary decisions by babus, as Indians derisively call civil servants. They note the babus of Delhi, for their part, have generated enormous queues when the central government, when the central government's babus decided it was time to lift the nationwide ban on alcohol sales, a measure whose utility in the fight against the virus remains mysterious, the government of Delhi decreed that only particular liquor stores could open. This needless constriction created a crush so great as to squash any semblance of social distancing. The babus then added insult by slapping a 70% tax on booze. And from south of the border, Vox reports that the coronavirus has killed thousands of people in Mexico, but suspicions are swirling that President Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador's administration is severely and perhaps purposely undercounting Mexico's COVID-19 deaths. Recent media investigations, including the Wall Street Journal, New York Times, and Spain's El País, appear to support these claims. El País says that Mexico likely has 600 to 700,000 COVID cases, about 17 times higher than the official count. On top of that, Mexico also has one of the lowest testing rates among developed countries and doesn't appear that it'll be increasing anytime soon. Mexico's president, who goes by AMLO, made repeated statements to assure the country that everything was fine as this began. He posted a video on Facebook on March 22nd, six days after Donald Trump first debuted his 15 Days to Slow the Spreads plan, saying, Live life as usual. If you're able and have the means to do so, continue taking your family out to eat, because that strengthens the economy. In fact, he proceeded to hold political rallies, kiss supporters, and request that Mexicans go out shopping. It's fair to say that the numbers in Mexico are going to continue to rise abruptly. Somewhat surprisingly, The Economist notes in an article that uh, two places that are doing a pretty good job of containing the coronavirus appear to be the Indian state of Kerala and the Republic of Vietnam, both run by communists. Of course, one reason for their success was the Communist Party in these locations uh, imposed stringent lockdowns on some districts with communes of as many as 10,000 inhabitants placed under heavy police guard. As in China, potential carriers of the disease were quarantined away from their own families. We need to take a break, and after that, we're going to stop talking about this. We need to do that also. 
And what better way to do that than to bring back our old friend, Dr. Howard McKinney. We expect him to be as interesting as always, so stick around for that. You're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett.